Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. We've got a real treat for you today for Spirit in Action. As regular listeners no doubt know, the Northern Spirit Radio Project is not about the flash news sensation of the minute, which is so prevalent in the U.S. media. No doubt important subjects do make their way into the mainstream media, but too often the so-called news is terribly shallow or simply sensationalism. This year's earthquake in Haiti and the massive suffering and loss of life there did bring some very helpful focus to that small Caribbean nation, though it also brought out masses of reporters looking for sensationalist angles instead of deep insights. One of the people those reporters looked to is Patrick Belgard-Smith, not only for his decades with the Africology Department of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, but because he was born in Haiti and includes Haiti as one of the countries he is focused on in his study of Africology. But the big draw for some of the populists pursuing journalists is the fact that Patrick Belgard-Smith is also a voodoo priest. He'll join us by phone in a moment because of his expertise in the culture, politics, and religion of the people of Haiti, Cuba, Venezuela, Brazil, and other nations, and in the hope that he can increase our understanding of and help us along a path of healing spirit. Patrick Belgard-Smith is of UW-Milwaukee's Africology Department, and he joins us from Milwaukee. Patrick, I'm so pleased you could join me for Spirit in Action. I'm glad to be here. It's such a beautiful day. How does the temperature in Milwaukee compare to Haiti, where you grew up? Well, it's lovely today. We're going to hit, I think, 70 degrees here. And I grew up in Port-au-Prince, which is very, very hot and especially humid. I can take heat, but humidity I cannot take. So for much of my life, I thought it was common to feel uncomfortable. So I had to come to the Midwest to find the joys of winter. Do you actually experience the Milwaukee climate, and in particular winter, as a joy? Some people don't, uh, maybe especially if they've grown up in a tropical climate like you have. Well, actually, I found myself in the winter I love winter. I know it's not going to last forever, and it feels so much better towards the end of it. In the Caribbean, where I lived pretty much most of my life, it was nice every day, and I got tired of nice. Nice has its limits. 
Well, I think Milwaukee is fortunate to have you there teaching in UW-Milwaukee's Africology department. Of course, an important part of your expertise is Haiti, where you grew up, but you've also done particular study in Venezuela and Cuba. What's your drive? What's your interest? Why do you study these places and these cultures and these people? Well, I'm from the Caribbean, and certainly Cuba is a part of the Caribbean, and after I left Haiti, I realized that I was actually a Caribbean man as much as I was a Haitian. And now my nation extends from Cuba to Trinidad. Now, Venezuela happens to be part of the greater Caribbean, I guess, Colombia as well. Parts of the coastline in Central America, certainly in the blue fields in Nicaragua and uh, the Atlantic coastline of Mexico. But I also study Brazil. I try to go to Brazil every single year. I have developed some very close friendships there as well as in Cuba and elsewhere. So now the planet is becoming my world and it's becoming my nation. There's a lot of rich and wonderful places to visit. Among the countries that you named, there is a variety of languages spoken, Spanish, French, indigenous, pidgin French, English, and in Brazil, there's Portuguese. Do you speak all of these languages, or just how do you get around? I like to say that I'm illiterate in three languages. English is my third language, and I learned it as a freshman in college. I spoke no English, and I had to learn it very, very quickly to survive freshman English at the University of the Virgin Islands, where I first went to school way back in the 60s. So I'm dating myself, I guess. In terms of Portuguese, I can understand a fair amount of it. It took me several tries to be able to read it, actually. I would come down from my room to the lobby of the hotel where I was staying year after year, and I would religiously pick up the paper and look at it. And, of course, it made no sense to me. One day, 24 hours later, I do that, and I start reading it all of a sudden. The day before, I couldn't read it. That day, I could read it, so I felt very proud of myself. You teach in the Department of Africology, What's the purpose of this program? And I mean, I have some ideas, and I read on the website what they say about it. What brought you to this study? Why is it important to share this with the world? It's a rather unique program in the United States. We were the first ones created, actually. Well, uh, there is a little bit of a dispute, and so we might want to split the difference, actually. We are more than 40 years old, listed as the official first black studies department in the U.S. is San Francisco State. We come second, but actually, if the legislation enacting the departments came first at UW-Milwaukee through the university senate way back when, but San Francisco State jumped the queue and actually created the physical space before we did. So we can split the honor of being the first black studies program here. But UWM is unique in that from the very, very inception of that program, it was international in scope. There are virtually no programs in the United States that are that way. The faculty members have always come from the African diaspora. We have African Americans, Ethiopians, Ghanaians, Haitians, Jamaicans, African Americans who specialize in Malawi, for instance. We have two white faculty in the department. And we have always stressed the international dimension of black studies because the history of people of African descent does not start in 1619. It certainly does not start 
with slavery. It started thousands of years before. So we covered the entire African continent, and we covered the Caribbean, North America, Latin America. It's interesting because I go to Canada several times a year. I have family there, and I also go and do speeches and scholarly presentations, and people there beg me to introduce a course about Afro-Canadians. There is a thriving community of Afro-Canadians, but we have no such course here. So this is something that we ought to think about. So we learn a bit about Africa, and I'm sorry to say it's true, but most people in the USA are essentially illiterate when it comes to international matters. A lot of people barely knew about Haiti until the earthquake happened, and now there's a lot of people very concerned about Haiti, at least in a, a fleeting way. Your program is opening up consciousness to that, connecting us to more of humanity. Is that one of the aspirations that you have in the program, or is it just sharing something that's dear to your soul? Yeah, yes, indeed. For instance, we have a course on the black family, and we don't start it in the city of Milwaukee or in the United States. We start it in West Africa and Central Africa. We do a rapid stop in the Caribbean. We go to Brazil, and we end up in the inner city in Milwaukee. The black family certainly has roots elsewhere around the world, and we have interesting similarities and differences that can be observed. One of the things also that the department is doing as of next semester, but unfortunately I will have retired by then, is we are starting our first PhD program with about seven students and an expanded faculty base. And so that's going to be interesting because we'll be training, actually, the next professors for the United States and abroad. And we'll be having African students. We'll be having African-American students and white students as well. So it's going to be very diverse. And I'm very proud to say that my department was very forward-looking in thinking about all these things and what needed to be done over a long period of time. And we've been at it for 40 years. You mentioned to me earlier, Patrick, that you had planned to go to Haiti and you were intending to be there, actually, at the time that the earthquake hit. What happened there? Well, I am actually, I guess, suffering a little bit from survivor guilt. I was invited to go to Haiti and to do lectures in all the provincial capitals, as well as Port-au-Prince itself, because I have a book that has come out in French. One of my books was recently translated into the French language, and they wanted me to introduce it to the Haitian intellectual public. But I had already made plans to be in Cuba that period of time. I had already purchased my ticket. There was a possibility that I could have taken a plane from Santiago de Cuba into Port-au-Prince without direct flights. And so I might have been there when, when the event happened. But instead, I felt tired, and I came back home to Milwaukee. So um, I was not there. I was sorry to note that a number of your extended relations suffered because of the earthquake, and a number of them died. You have my condolences and prayers. Speaking of prayers, you have an added dimension to your experience in that your experience with the voodoo religion, I mean, I think it's the indigenous religion, you say, of 100% of Haitians, but I know very little bit about it. 
I know a bit about voodoo as it existed in Togo, where I was in the Peace Corps in West Africa, but I'm not sure it's the same thing. So what does that mean? I think the word is ugan or hugan. How do you say it, what you are? Hugan would be a male priest. A female priest would be called mambo. And incidentally, there are as many, there are more female priests than there are male priests. And there are as many female deities as there are male deities. There are no differences established in Haiti on the basis of sex or gender. And so it becomes rather democratic. But certainly Togo is part and parcel of what occurred in the Caribbean, uh, in Haiti specifically, over the last 500 years. Although the core of Haitian culture is in old Dahomey, presently the Republic of Benin, and also in the Yoruba lands in western Nigeria with a hefty, hefty dose of the spiritual systems coming in from the Congo areas, from the Congo Basin, from Angola, and the two Congo republics. Haiti has really amalgamated all those systems to create its own. So in a very real sense, we can use the anthropological term that Haitian voodoo certainly is a Creole religion, but its foundation, its foundation is 100% African from West and Central Africa. And since you're a Ugan and you're a priest in voodoo, so what does that involve? I mean, you, do you have to go to a seminary or what? Oh, no, no, no. This is very, very different. Those are spiritual systems, more so than religion. Actually, the religion does not have a name. We call it that because foreigners have called it that. Because ultimately, at the base of it all, all human groups, all ethnic groups have created their own religious system, all of them. And so everybody from that particular people practiced pretty much the same thing. There were no such thing as worldwide religions that would do battle and fight to garner adherence. Neither Islam nor Christianity, certainly, if you go back early enough. And we have to remember that Islam is brand new. It's a new kid on the block. Christianity is barely 2,000 years old, barely 2,000 years old. So it is a fairly new child. Uh, but these two religions certainly have done battle, gotten many adherents from all over the world. But in Haiti, the phrase that you will hear most often is, do you serve the spirit? And the answer is yes or no. Yes, I serve the spirit. Vodou is one dance. Now it is applied to the entire system itself. And it is in juxtaposition to the other world religions, if you will, that have gotten into the Haitian space and now also divide up the Haitian people. And so from that standpoint, you needed a word to differentiate it from what came in later, such as Christianity, for instance, and especially in its most virulent form now, Protestantism, but not of mainstream churches. The Americans have come in. And they have established those Protestant churches since the first U.S. military occupation of Haiti in the 1920s, in the same way that they have also invaded Africa and Central America and Latin America, for that matter. So you have a battle between the Catholic Church and the Protestant groups, and both get together to disband or try to get rid of the national religion, voodoo.
So just to be clear, when you say Protestant churches, you're not referring to Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian. You're referring to the more evangelical, I guess, more conservative fundamentalist end of Christianity? And they are helped. They are helped substantially by the American federal government. But of course, first and foremost, by private groups in the United States. There were some Protestant churches established before the U.S. occupation in 1915, but very few Haitians were members of it, and it was members, a segment of the Haitian upper class. The Episcopalian Church, the Anglican Church was there, for instance. The Methodists were there. Uh, the Lutherans were never there. But now what we have in the countryside are those groups coming in from the United States, and they are also swarming throughout Cuba. When Americans are not allowed into Cuba, the only Americans who get through are these people, with the blessing, of course, of the federal government. And they are everywhere now. Catholic faith has gotten small and small in Haiti, whereby it used to be 90% of the population. Now it is barely 60% of the population. Protestants are about 40% and getting stronger by the day. However, this is a saying that has real impact back home. They say Haiti is 60% Catholic, 40% Protestant, and 100% Vodou. Because people who flee, for instance, the Catholic religion of Vodou and go into Protestantism still fear it, still believe in it. They just decide to move away. And sometimes they just don't move away. In the dead of night, they'll go see a priest. They will go see their hunger in the dead of night when push comes to shove. And we see this in West Africa as well, by the way, in terms of people who've been Islamicized, in terms of people who are Christians. They go to the Marabu in the dead of night. They still believe in the old ways. Uh, this was, after all, good enough for grandmother. I think that mutual understanding is essential to peace in the world, and peace and justice are near and dear to my heart. There are so many misunderstandings and myths and misleading attempts to mislead people about what voodoo is or isn't. Could you dispel some of the myths for us, please? Yeah, it's really interesting because what we think of voodoo is what Hollywood gave us in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And it was very much in terms of providing a rationality or basis for the U.S. Marine Corps being in Haiti for 19 years, we had to justify it somehow, as we, for instance, earlier on justified slavery on biblical terms. And so the stuff that we hear about, the stuff that we think about, zombies, dolls with pens sticking in them, that kind of thing, do not necessarily have a tangible reality in Haiti. I found out eventually that dolls with pens, which I'll never seen in Haiti, come from German and British witchcraft. But after all, in the 1920s, what did Hollywood have to work with? They knew nothing of Haiti, barely where it was, and so they had to make things up. And those things have continued merrily down the decades. But voodoo, let me say this, and that will get into some of the religious, some of the meanings of all this. Voodoo occupies a similar place in Haiti as Judaism does in Israel, as Hinduism does in India, as Shinto does in Japan. Those, except for Judaism, 
uh, Haitian voodoo bears a very, very strong similarity to Hinduism and to Shinto in Japan. As a matter of fact, one of the women who trained me, I was trained exclusively by female priests in Haiti, was a woman of the upper class who actually had a master's degree from the London School of Economics. She became a mambo early on in her life. She taught classical ballet in Haiti. And when she became too old to do that, she taught yoga in Haiti. And she studied Hinduism for about 25 years, the last 25 years of her life. And she kept telling me, you need to look at Hinduism. It's just like what we do. And since then, I have found out that it was, she was indeed telling me the truth. And Shinto is not decried, and certainly there are not ugly films made about it. But then again, we have come to grudgingly respect the Japanese and Japanese culture. But anything that smacks of Africa does not get much respect. In fact, it is denigrated, and the word denigrated means a great deal. But Haitian voodoo is really rooted in science and scientific understanding. In fact, there is a Haitian Protestant physician who has written an excellent piece for a book I edited talking about quantum physics and the place of voodoo inside quantum physics. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I don't pretend to understand the intricacies of any of this, but it is rooted in our understanding of the cosmos. And the most significant statement, I think, that you will hear in Asian voodoo, and this is something that you will hear in the countryside, if you look into the cosmic mirror, the image that looks back at you is the image of God. And this is sufficient for me to look at it again. And of course, there are a large number of statements that people will make about their indigenous religion, but this certainly resonates in my mind. And it resonates in my mind as well. So how long did your training take? What did it involve? My training is not over. I have been a priest for the last 20 years. I anticipate I will still be learning my trade and my skill long after my death. You don't go to school. You're initiated. Those are religions that demand initiation so that not every human being is at the same level in terms of his or her road. We have different roads, we have different specialties, and we keep learning, and we never stop learning. It is impossible. We don't get a degree. We are recognized as priests throughout the Haitian territory and to help the Haitian diaspora, but our training is individualized to fit each and every person. There are hierarchies within each and every temple, of course, and in Haiti itself, there are tens of thousands of temples. There's never been an actual census for us to know exactly how many. And what's a ceremony that you might have like? You did mention that people would be going out at night to various ceremonies. I assume there's daytime ceremonies as well. What's a kind of typical ceremony? Some ceremonies can last an entire week. Ceremonies go on cycle. There are ceremonies that we do on a daily basis. There are some that occur on a monthly basis. There are ceremonies that occur once every seven years. There are ceremonies that occur once every 70 years. And most Haitians, the uh, lifetime expectancy is barely 60 years, if you're lucky, so that people who see that 70-year ceremony will not be alive to see the next one. So there are cycles within cycles within cycles. Some of them can last a very long time indeed, several days. And typically, we do this at night because people have to work during the day. 
they are farmers for the most part, or they have worked downtown if they live in the cities in Haiti. And also remember that this develops very much so during the times of slavery. Nighttime was when enslaved Africans were able to move away for a few hours without perhaps being noticed. Nighttime becomes important to us because that's when we were able to get away. I'm just curious about something else that I've noted when I was in Africa. The week cycle that we're used to using here in the U.S. is a seven-day cycle. And when you mentioned 70 years and these things happen in different periods, is the indigenous cycle, is the native Haitian week a seven-day week, or are there cycles that otherwise? Yes, it is a seven-day week. And these are the kinds of things that we have also inherited from French colonialism. Uh, because, for instance, typically the slaves had a day off on Sundays. And also because uh, it was absolutely forbidden for slaves, uh, wherever they were, in the British Caribbean, in, uh, in the South, in the United States, elsewhere, to practice their own religion. Even drumming was forbidden for periods of time in all of those Caribbean islands and in the south of the U.S., so that um, uh, people had to hide their deities and their religious ideas and concerns, for instance, behind the Roman Catholic saints. And so the day of that particular saint, as enshrined by the Roman Catholic Church, became the day in which that particular African deity was also celebrated. And so that you have a coming together of the liturgical necessities of the calendar of what is essentially a West African faith into a Roman Catholic calendar. This is also true of Cuba. This is also true of Brazil. But in Brazil, people are moving away from the Roman Catholic saints because they said, look, we had to hide, we had to dissimulate because we were not allowed to practice our faith. Now there is the persecutions of far less. They're picking up again, by the way, with the evangelical Christians who are beating up people in the streets of Brazil now. But we don't have to adopt the Roman Catholic Church. We can dispense with them now that uh, the state is not actively pursuing us. In Haiti, we still keep the saints to a certain extent. But we know nothing, nothing of that saint except the clothes that he or she is wearing, the colors are appropriate, or they have an accoutrement, they're holding in their hand a symbol that relates directly to an African deity. So we don't know the life of that saint, and we don't care about the life of that saint, because it's not the saint, it's the loi, L-W-A. In Cuba, they're holding on to the saints a bit more firmly, but Cuba has a lot more people of European descent who are practicing Santeria. And it's really interesting to me that since the Cuban Revolution of 1959, the religion that has gotten the strongest in Cuba is Santeria. And it is practiced overwhelmingly by white Cubans as well. They won't admit that to you. But you have to go back to Cuba twice a year or three times a year, as I used to do. And eventually we'll break and say, oh, yes, I've been doing it all my life. But you had to meet them for 15 years before they admitted that to you. Well, speaking of Cuba, 
I mentioned this to you before, but I would like some advice. I'm going there in October with a group of Quaker folk dancers. So it's not only evangelicals going there, it's those of us with a more open and liberal theology as well. Where are the places in Cuba where I should visit? What should I do to get in touch with the important roots there? Well, I would suggest not limiting yourself to Havana. Everybody goes to Havana, and very unfortunately, this is what we know of Cuba. That's the capital city, obviously. It's also, to me, very Latin American. If you go east, and Cuba is a very, very long country. It reminds me a bit of Chile, because it is skinny and long. And 900 kilometers east of uh, Havana, you will find Santiago de Cuba. Santiago is the second largest city with more than half a million people. It is also the African section of Cuba, whereby Havana is very Latin American in its feel and it's in the architecture. Uh, Santiago is very Caribbean, and that was the ancient capital of Cuba. Uh, that is also the cultural center, the core of Cuba. So there is a great deal to be seen there. And of course, along the way, there are absolutely magnificent cities to be seen. So when you get closer to going, and if you are lucky enough to end up in Santiago, I will give you some pointers in terms of Santiago itself. It's absolutely marvelous. And in Santiago, by the way, Santeria is not as well developed as it is further west. What you find, for instance, in eastern Cuba is a heavy, heavy Haitian presence that has been there for the last 200 years. And those hundreds of thousands of Cuban citizens of Haitian descent still speak the Haitian language, still practice their voodoo. And it's interesting to see little kids in the mountains, in the Sierra Maestra, speaking in Haitian to each other. I'm fascinated by that. There are also hundreds of thousands of Cubans of Jamaican extraction. These groups have come to work in the sugar fields, and they have kept the English language as well. That region of Cuba is quite diverse and absolutely magnificent. If you've just tuned in, this is Spirit in Action, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production, and that means you can also go out to our website, northernspiritradio.org, to hear this and other programs again. You can find links to our guests, and you can leave us a comment, and we'd love to hear from you. We're visiting today with Patrick Belcard-Smith. He's in the Department of Africology at the University of Wisconsin down in Milwaukee, as opposed to up here in Eau Claire. We don't have one up here yet, Patrick. That's unfortunate. You mentioned the department there in Milwaukee was one of the first two in the nation. Are there a lot more now? There is certainly a Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's been around for a while. I don't remember exactly when it was created. So it's our sister department in terms of Wisconsin. But there are hundreds of black studies departments carrying different names, of course, throughout. We have not agreed on the name. And most black studies departments or Afro-American studies departments or African-American or Africana, they do essentially the United States and very little else. Because, for instance, in Madison, you not only have Afro-American studies, but you also have African studies. At UWM, we've never had African studies outside of my department. So we have united those two segments and made them whole. In many other places, you will have African studies 
understanding independently of black studies. And I think black studies is unduly narrow. At Harvard University, for instance, the emphasis has been clearly, because of the faculty members available there, in literature. They do other things, too, but there is an emphasis on literature. In my department, yes, we do literature. We do psychology. We do political economy and economics, and we do history, and we do everything with a focus on people of African descent, wherever they may be. You've participated and written a number of books. A couple of the most recent ones from 2006 were Haitian Voodoo, Spirit, Myth, and Reality, and another one, Invisible Powers, Voodoo and Development in Haiti. And I'm very interested in the possibility of indigenous religion, indigenous culture, indigenous people taking power to develop the country. What perspectives do you have on that with respect to Haiti or the other countries where you've traveled and studied? Well, in Haiti, certainly, we are essentially one large ethnic group of 8 million people. We're essentially, we're all related by blood. In a country of 8 million, you know, we, we can indeed talk about six degrees of separation. And whether you are a member of the upper class, which is about 1% of the country, and it is that upper class that created the mayhem of the last two centuries, that's a different issue, or you are a member of the middle class, which is perhaps about 7 to 10% of the Haitian population, or even part of the very large urban working force or peasantry, we are all related. And upper class families have connections, blood connections with the countryside, which they may admit to or not admit to. But we're cousins under the skin. And certainly when you have such unity, all Haitians speak Haitian, for instance, which is, by the way, not a language derived from French at all but it has West African grammatical and syntactical roots overlaid with a mostly French vocabulary, but not exclusively French, because there are the African words, Portuguese words, Dutch words, and a large number of English words now dating from the first U.S. occupation back in 1915. Everybody speaks the Haitian language, everybody. Maybe 15% of Haitians know what was the official language exclusively until 1987, French. Very few Haitians speak French, but we all speak Haitian. We all understand Vodou. We are all related in that sense, but both the Haitian language and the Haitian religion have been denigrated. They were persecuted, both the language and the religion. Going to school, for instance, in Port-au-Prince, me and my classmates were forbidden to speak Creole. But of course, what are you going to speak to your maids and the gardener and the chauffeur who don't speak French? So you have to resort to it, obviously, and we know it, and we have come to cherish it. And so you will have to use both the language and the religion in order to develop socially, politically, and economically, because you cannot deny Haitian culture to Haiti and think that you're going to democratize the country, that you're going to develop a healthy democracy. Democracy cannot be anchored when you're denying the presence of Haitian culture altogether. Certainly, you talked about the 1% of the population that caused so much havoc in the country. 
what we think of as corruption in the United States is probably not seen as corruption by a lot of people. You get a job for your cousin. Here, that's a great sin. And in Africa, where I lived, that's, of course, how you work. And it's not corruption. Yeah, we have a name here. That's nepotism. (laughs) Yeah. And how does that work in Haiti? And what are the hopes for the future there? Well, it's interesting because, you know, look, if you go back 100 years ago in Western Europe proper, and certainly before that, you are talking about the same levels of corruption. You're also talking about, if you go back 200 years in France, French people did not speak French for the most part. The majority of the French population did not speak French. 200 years ago, all of Haitians spoke the Haitian language. Not all the French spoke French. And there was a good deal of corruption in those places as well. We had an attempted coup d'etat, a military government that tried to take over in France under President Charles de Gaulle. And we're talking about what? Not that long ago, certainly. We're talking about military dictatorships and dictatorships in places like Portuguese, Portugal, Salazar, or Franco in Spain. And so the natural evolution of peoples coming into their own takes a while, certainly. But you see, politics becomes corrupt when foreign interests come into a country and seize the industrial and the commercial areas. That happened in Haiti, where the Haitian elites were strongly ensconced in commerce and industry until the Germans came in in the 1870s. The British came in, the French came in, and the Americans came in, pushing the Haitian elite out of the private sector. So the only recourse now is to go into government full strength and make money out of it. What is not corruption in the private sector is corruption in the public sector. Cuba had the most corrupt government until 1959 because the Americans, the private sector in the U.S., had control of the Cuban economy at close to 100%. We controlled everything in Cuba. So the Cuban elites had no choice but to make its money in government. And it had the reputation of being the most corrupt government in Latin America. I'm sure that others would vie for that title because they were all corrupt. But if you have foreign interest taking over your businesses where you can be corrupt legally, in businesses, then you've got a problem because you still have to feed your family. And my grandfather, for instance, had been in politics all of his life. He was a cabinet member under the American Occupation Forces. He had seven children to feed, young children. And the American military establishment in Haiti that controlled the country forced the Haitian government to take a loan a bank loan in the United States. And Haiti has never wanted to take a bank loan from anybody. And so what the American authorities did is they cut off the salaries of all Haitian government officials, starting with the president and his cabinet, so that the eventually cabinet gave in. So, okay, fine, we'll take a loan. I've got seven kids at home. So there were pressures applied certainly that way. You mentioned something that I imagine some of our listeners have no idea was there. You said the American occupation. How much of its history has Haiti been occupied by the U.S.? Well, before the occupation that lasted between 1915 and 1934, the U.S. had invaded Haiti 19 times within a very short period of time. 
under the flimsiest of excuses. In 1915, uh, the U.S. had made up its mind several years earlier that it had to occupy Haiti and had drafted actually documents where there was a blank space. In those days, we used typewriters, a blank space for the actual date that the U.S. would invade, it desired to invade. Partly the excuse was given that German businessmen in Germany was too powerful in the Caribbean area and certainly too powerful in Haiti. So it had to be stopped. We had to move the Haitians away from Germany. So it invaded that way. It invaded at the same time the Dominican Republic and occupied it for a number of years between 1916 and 1924. It invaded Nicaragua. It invaded, well, of course, before that, there were incursions into Mexico. And in fact, uh, the American landmass grew enormously when the U.S. in 1948 and after was able to gobble up 50% of Mexico. 50% of Mexico is now the United States. And so there was this expansionist behavior. That was manifest destiny when it comes to North America. There was uh, territorial expense elsewhere in the Caribbean. And of course, most of the Caribbean was occupied were colonies of England and France. But certainly the countries that were independent were fair game to the United States at that point. And the occupation of Haiti is the turning plate in Haitian history. There's before the occupation and there's after the occupation. Everything changed during the occupation. Haiti was tied economically to the U.S. at that point. Before that, it was doing business with Germany and France. But the U.S. became paramount at that point. And it has, of course, remained so throughout the Caribbean, of course, in Trinidad, in Jamaica, and elsewhere. Now, by the way, we're talking about Haiti before January 12, 2010, and Haiti after January 12, 2010. That is when, of course, we had that event. And back home, I've talked to enough of my colleagues and friends and family members. They don't talk about the earthquakes. They talk about that event or what happened to us, that thing. Nobody wants to say the word. We've been traumatized to that extent. Has the response of the international community, including the USA, been positive or negative? I think there were just a, an immense number of soldiers from the U.S. that went there to help out. Is that a pretext or is that a fact? The first responders were Cubans, Cuban doctors. There were about 600 or so Cuban doctors in Haiti. They've been there for the better part of 10 years or more in the countryside, and they were the first to respond. It's interesting to note that CNN would mislabel every time they spoke to a Cuban doctor. They refused, refused to identify that person as a Cuban doctor. They said he was a Spaniard from Spain. The U.S. also took drastic measures to try to stop landing of Venezuelan and Cuban planes in Haiti. Now, Cuba and Venezuela have been lifelong friends of the Haitian Republic for the last 200 years. Very close connections very close political relationships for 200 years. The U.S. was angry at that, quite angry at that, as a matter of fact. The American public came in beautifully. There was obviously a great deal of money contributed to the Haitian victims. Canada also came in and other countries as well. The Gaza Strip sent help. Turkey 
magnificent help. So it was absolutely magnificent. The problem is with governments. About 75% of Canadian federal assistance coming out of Ottawa returns to Canada in terms of goods and services that must be purchased in Canada. Out of every dollar spent by the American government, three cents, three cents went to the Haitian government. Thirty-three cents out of that dollar went to support the 22,000 American soldiers in Haiti that landed soon afterwards. There was no need for soldiers, none whatsoever. In fact, the Haitians did not riot. We expected them to riot. We were begging them to riot. They did not riot. We did finally get riots in Chile, but not in Haiti. Anderson Cooper and CNN kept saying, where are the riots? We expect riots. We cannot give water out because there will be riots if we give water. So water was withheld for several days from the Haitian public because we expected riots. The riots never came. Come on, you guys. We need riots here. We found them in Chile, but we didn't find them in Haiti. And so we had 22,000 U.S. soldiers at one point. There are fewer now, obviously. But there was no reason for the soldiers at all. We needed doctors, which is what Cuban gave us. Cuba did not give us soldiers. It gave us doctors. Let's say thank you to the Cubans and all the other people who, out of the goodness of their heart, it is so easy for even well-meaning people to do things that are hurtful to other folks. And in that vein, I want to ask you about attitudes in the United States. You live in Milwaukee, and, you know, Milwaukee has been listed as one of the most segregated cities in North America. It's so different from where I visited up in Canada, how they integrate their cities. Milwaukee has very separate communities. Have we made significant strides in the U.S.? And in Milwaukee, how does it feel to you? I read before I answer that question to respond to the statement that you made previously. I need to remind people that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But also keep in mind that in Haitian voodoo, hell does not exist. Heaven does not exist. Sins do not exist. So we look at the divine in very different terms than Christians or Muslims or Jews look at the divine very, very, very differently. But yes, Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. has been so forever, actually. Although the black population in Milwaukee took a very long time to form, if you go back maybe 60, 70, 80 years ago, maybe the population, African-American population, was about 3%. Now it's about 36%, and very much concentrated in certain districts of the city. The state of Wisconsin is a very, very, very European-derived state because the overall population, I think, of the black population is perhaps 5 or 6%. On my campus, which is an urban campus in a state university, about 8% or so of the students are black. But 8% is the tipping point, which is interesting. I don't know if it's been explained well enough by sociologists, but 8% is sacred in terms of racial politics in the U.S. When a neighborhood goes 8% African-American, all the whites flee, or pretty much all of them flee. And within a matter of years, it becomes an all-black neighborhood. 
My university is about 8% African-American in the city that is 36% black. In other words, blacks are underrepresented on this campus, black professors as well. And so what happens there is that throughout the state of Wisconsin, people are addressing UWM as, oh, my God, the black campus, the black campus. You're sending your daughter to the black campus? Are you sure you want to do that? It's the black campus with 8%. Well, you need to remind them that 92% of the student body is not black, and most of them are white, because we have very few Native Americans on campus, and not all that many Hispanics, actually. So for all intents and purposes, it is a white campus as far as I can tell. But this is not the perception, certainly. We are getting our students from all over the state now. And so people are admitting freely in class that they've never seen a black person till they got to UWM in Milwaukee because they live in places in Wisconsin where there are no blacks at all. The only blacks they had seen on television, they say, in the class, which is kind of interesting. So it gives us something to work with and something very difficult to work with at times. There's another aspect I want to mention you told me when I first contacted you that your inbox was quite full, you know, a 1,000 or 1,300 emails, a lot of them from the media, and they wanted an interview because, you know, you're connected with Haiti. But, of course, what they wanted to talk about was voodoo and, and blood sacrifices and such. And even though people don't think of that kind of approach as racism, I think it probably is. What's your reaction? Yes, it is. It's interesting that when Haiti is on its knees, or actually prone down on the ground. That's what we immediately seize upon. We want to talk about voodoo, V-O-O-D-O-O. We want to talk about zombies. We want to talk about Hollywood films from the 1920s and 30s. That's what we know. And it's interesting because the um, Wall Street Journal called me. I don't know that it did anything with this because I didn't subsequently talk with them. But a woman there wanted to talk about blood rituals. And she wanted to talk about the worship of the dead. I usually am not at a loss for words. But it must have felt like an eternity because my mouth was wide open at the other end of the telephone. I did not know what to think, what to say, because I had never heard of blood rituals. I had never heard of worship of the dead. And it took me by surprise. CNN wanted me to talk about this, that, and the other as well. And actually, and several groups at CNN have contacted me independently of each other. And they decided uniformly to boycott me at the end because I hung up on one of their reporters using uh, a Joe Biden word at one point, and they had gotten access to my unlisted telephone number, which angered me also. But that's what they wanted to talk about. Now, in Chile, this did not come up. And I suppose that by that point, God had muzzled Pat Robertson, because he said the only reason that it happened in Haiti is because they have had a pact with the devil. Well, the devil does not exist in the Haitian religion, does not exist, very simply. And so perhaps what happened in Chile was because these people were Roman Catholics. And the very same Pat Robinson had said that Katrina had to occur because a week after Katrina, there was going to be an LGBT parade down the streets of New Orleans. So God had to punish the entire city of New Orleans because of several hundred gay people who are going to march down the streets. I don't know. Maybe the earthquake in Turkey 
was because they are Muslims, and it was followed by an earthquake in Taiwan, I suppose, because they are Buddhists. I don't know where that ends, but I thought it was insensitive. It was, of course, racially motivated, even though they don't know that, and they don't understand it that way. They wanted something exotic. They wanted something erotic, and I had nothing to say. There's no worship of the dead. In fact, the dead are not dead. They're still with us in a different form. You know, there's water vapor, and there's water. The dead are around. And there is, of course, the notion of ancestorship, which is terribly significant for us. The ancestors are there, and they are there to help. Uh, but the 230,000 or so Haitians who perished in Port-au-Prince, in Leogan, in Jacmel, the three cities that were hit in a major way, the 330,000 have gone into the realm of ancestors, and I feel I still feel rather close to them, even though I did not know them personally. But I feel their presence, and that's fine, that's good enough for me. But I'm not talking about worship of the dead. The word dead itself is a bit problematic, as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes those kinds of attitudes make me angry, but more often these days I experience a great sadness when I think of all of the mistaken, well-meaning people. As you said, uh, hell, which doesn't exist in Vodou, is paved with good intentions. But it does leave me very sad to think of all of the people who, given a little bit of good knowledge, I think maybe won't be as offensive and hurtful in the ways that they are. So I thank you today for taking the time with us, Patrick, to talk about reality on the ground, the reality of your experience growing up, and the hopes and aspirations of the people, not only of Haiti, but of course of Venezuela, Cuba, Brazil, so many good people, and hopes for what you're doing right there in Milwaukee. I want to mention our guest has been Patrick Belgard-Smith, He's author of a number of books and co-author of some, Haitian Vodou, Spirit, Myth, Reality, Invisible Powers, Vodou and Development, Fragments of Bone, Neo-African Religions in New World. So many good books. You can find him via my site, Northern Spirit Radio. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time with me today for Spirit in Action. I am grateful that you invited me to talk in your program, and um, we can do that sometime again, I hope. I'll look forward to it. Thanks again. Thank you. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.